Hello and um, welcome everybody, where, wherever uh, you may be. Um, my name is Alan Manning. Um, I'm from the economics department at what is currently the virtual uh, LSE. Very pleased today to host uh, today's talk uh, by Martin Sambu, which is about his uh, new book. Uh, Martin is the FT's European economics correspondent, but also writes more widely uh, on economic policy. Um, he's always worth reading, and I'm sure he'll be worth listening to uh, today. Um, Martin, I think, is planning to talk for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we'll have uh, questions and Q&A session. Um, you can't ask questions uh, directly, but what you can do is um, submit them um, online. And then I have a sort of fantastic support team who feed them through to me. Um, and I will ask what I think are the best and uh, most uh, pertinent uh, questions. So um, without uh, more ado, I'll just hand over to Martin. It's all yours. Alan, thank you very much. Uh, thanks everyone for being here, uh, being here virtually. Uh, got to update our language. Um, it's really an honor to, to present this book um, in, a, in a talk hosted by the LSE. I finished this manuscript just as coronavirus was arriving in Europe, uh, it seems. I didn't see that coming, but with everything that's happened in the last few months, uh, it seems to me that the sort of problems in our economy that I'm writing about have become even more relevant uh, than before. And to show you why I think that, I want to start with a short personal anecdote. Um, early in the lockdown, I went down our street to check on, our, uh, on a neighbor of ours, you might call, I'll call her Mary. Uh, she's not uh, sort of vulnerable, she's in her 50s, but she works as a supermarket uh, cashier at the, at the checkout till. And we hadn't seen her on the street for a couple of weeks and thought, well, you know, maybe we should just check out frontline worker and so on. Um, so with perfect social distancing, we just knocked on the doorstep back to see and, and chatted a bit. Everything was fine. She was talking a bit about how they weren't given masks or not allowed to wear masks or gloves um, at the checkout. But then she said, but I have to go to work, don't I? Otherwise, people won't be able to buy their food. And she said that not as a complaint, uh, but as an expression of pride and a newfound pride uh, with this status of essential worker. And this is something we all recognized uh, at the time, we recognized it with a weekly clap for carers. We all suddenly became very aware that a lot of people in lowly jobs were actually essential, literally for our survival. Um, of course, we, we're thinking about the doctors and nurses, but I have in mind the, uh, the carers, the cleaners, the supermarket shelf stockers and cashiers, the delivery drivers, the bus drivers, uh, and so on. And this sudden moment of, of newfound status that Mary expressed and that we all recognized, I think of as a, as a moment of moral reordering because the fact is that the, the general background is that people in those lines of work have not been given very much status. As I said, these are lowly jobs and they've been treated with neglect and not even benign neglect by many of us and certainly by our social and economic system. And I'd like to start, and this is what I do in the first part of the book, trying to understand how it got to this point, where a lot of people who do work that's clearly essential for the economy uh, are left in a situation of low pay, very low pay in some cases, low status, often vulnerability to abuse and exploitation, and uh, unpredictable work situations and very erratic incomes as a result. One word for this situation is the new precariat. Many people living in very precarious work and life situations. How did it get to this? It's something that's been happening for a very long time, uh, many decades. I call it the end of belonging. And I do that in contrast with a period that came before. And I'd like to spend a minute on that period, the three decades roughly after the Second World War where there was a, an economy of belonging coming into being, one where pretty much everyone could aspire to a decent place. And I will try and show you just a few charts uh, about what happened then and what's been happening since, if I managed to get the technology to work, to make this point. Let's see, I choose this, share. You should now all be seeing uh, a chart. Um, 
what happened in every country of the industrialized world, of the West, if you like, is that you had a tremendous process of convergence along many dimensions, and I'll show you some of them, in the three decades after the war, that then either ended or even went into reverse. This chart here is inequality, income inequality. It's four of the biggest economies, the US, the UK, France, and Germany. On the left side, you see the measure of inequality called the Gini coefficient. Uh, and on the right, you see the income share of the top 1%. And what you see in all these countries is that up until about 1980, you saw a fall in inequality. And from about 1980, you saw a rise in inequality. Uh, let's see if I can get a next, uh, another chart. Yes, that was incomes. We see something similar in wealth, the stock of wealth, the net wealth people own, which also the inequality in wealth declined in the three decades after the war. This is France, the UK, and the US, but for other countries, it's harder to get the data, but similar patterns elsewhere. And from about 1980, a stagnation of that convergence, or even it went into reverse and you saw a rise in inequality. I will try to show one more chart, which to me is maybe the most striking uh, story about a process of convergence and a process of divergence. And this is across national geographic territories. Uh, each dot on the top chart is a US state, and each dot on the bottom chart is a uh, subnational region in Western Europe. Red is 1950 to 1980, roughly, uh, and purple is the decades that followed. And what, what I'm charting here is the speed of growth within those subnational regions charted against the original income level per capita. And what you see in the early period is this downward slope, so poorer regions were growing faster. Poor places caught up with rich ones. And the richest ones would typically be the capital cities. Uh, and then after about 1980, this stagnated. You, you don't really see that relationship. It's pretty flat. And in some countries, you've seen an increase in regional inequality uh, in the last three, four decades. So this is a third dimension in which for three decades, you had an economy where more and more everyone could hope for similar, or at least equivalent, decently acceptable job and economic prospects. Of course, there were exceptions. Certainly marginalized groups, minorities, women were often excluded, but the direction of travel was the right one. And since about 1980, we've seen divergence uh, or at least an end to the convergence process. And this has happened, as I say, across pretty much all of the West. I call that the end of belonging because it's the end of an economy where everyone could really aspire to belong to. Now, let me remove this so we can go back to talking. Um, now, th this isn't terribly new to, to any of you, but my experience is that fewer people know about the regional disparity, the regional divergence within countries, which I think has been politically particularly salient. Um, and we know that this divergence is linked to an increased polarization also in politics. The very difficult politics we've had in the West in the last four or five years is very clearly linked to it. So what was it that went wrong? Why did this happen? Now, the end of belonging in this economic sense coincided with a particular phenomenon, which was the end of mass industrial employment. Let me see if I can share one more chart. This chart, if I can get it up, is the number of factory jobs in the United States. Um, and as you see, again, it increases and increases and incre increases in the three decades after the war, and it peaks in the late 1970s. And then it falls, you know, bumps up and down, recessions and so on. Um, but you have a, a rise, a peak, and a fall. Again, this is very similar in pretty much every Western country the share of industrial jobs in overall employment had been falling throughout, but the absolute number had increased up to the late 1970s. And this is significant because it turns out that the, uh, the industrial economy, the economy where industrial growth and, and manufacturing was the driving force in the economy, turned out uh, to be 
particularly conducive to this sort of economy of belonging. It was regionally fairly well distributed. The, the scale of a factory kind of fits a middle-sized middle town. Uh, it also went with unionization and a sort of balance of power between capital and labor. Uh, and it drew people in, often people also with not very high formal qualifications, into decent paying jobs. And all of that was matched with this post-war moment of policies that encourage redistribution, the growth of the welfare state, and a pretty active both private and public uh, investment rate. And what happened around 1980 is that the economy shifted from industrial jobs being the main drivers of high surplus uh, jobs, high productivity jobs, to knowledge sectors taking over that, uh, that position in Western economies. Um, and what we've seen is that the shift in economic structure has happened to, to hit different people and benefit different people in very unequal ways. High knowledge services differ from industrial jobs in that they favor different skills. They are more favorable, they advantage people with higher formal education and cognitive abilities more. They take place, they, they uh, thrive in different places. They're particularly well suited for the big cities, big metropolitan cities, not so much small towns. Uh, they favor people, these, these changes favor people who are mobile, who will move to the city, for example, or people who are comfortable with change and people who are comfortable with the sort of difference you see in the big cities. And the change has also uh, been disadvantageous for certain jobs that, were, that tended to be seen as particularly male, working class male, the factory jobs, but not only factory jobs, jobs like being a roughneck on an oil rig, mining jobs, dock hands, that sort of, of jobs were the ones that were on the way out. And all of this explains a lot of the political polarization and the populist backlash we've seen against the social and economic model in general, but in particular against globalization. A big argument I make in the book is that globalization is the wrong target. Globalization was not a significant factor behind the end of belonging, the end of economic belonging. Rolling back globalization will not help it. Uh, and yet, a lot of the critique against these economic developments we've seen within every Western country takes the form of blaming globalization. Now, I say that's wrong for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one reason is that the timing doesn't really fit. Let me show you one, one other chart here. This is a, a, a way of depicting the timing of trade liberalization. Uh, the, 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 the developments I talked about are often blamed on increased trade with poor countries, in particular China, but other poor countries too. Uh, and uh, these charts show the average income of trading partners of each of the three blocks that are charted here, the US, Japan, and Europe, uh, as a measure of how much you trade with countries that are poorer than you, low-skilled, cheap labor countries. And what you see is that on this measure, globalization with poorer countries didn't really take off at all in the US or Europe until the 90s for the US and the 2000s for Europe. But the dynamics I showed you, they started around 1980. So the timing doesn't quite fit the, the, the blaming of globalization. So that's one problem with the globalization story. Another is that geographically it doesn't really fit. Uh, some of the countries that have navigated these changes the best, and I have in mind here the Nordic countries, are countries that have long been the most globalized, most economically open of all Western countries. And in contrast, the country that arguably has navigated these changes the worst, which is the US, is a relatively small, a relatively closed economy. It trades mostly with itself. Uh, but of course, this, uh, the tendency to blame globalization and trade is very strong because it looks like it fits the, the nature of the change, the loss of industrial jobs. And it is true, of course, that as industrial jobs have disappeared in the West, they have grown in places like China. But I want to po point out 
to you something I think is, is very important, which is that even if factory jobs declined, it is simply not true that manufacturing itself disappeared. This is the US, this is total manufacturing output, real manufacturing output in the US, an index of total manufacturing production. And as you see, that kept going up and up and up long after the peak in employment, which as you saw happened in the late 1970s. And I've set the index number here to 100 in, in 1980. Uh, so it kept going up, it went up in the 80s, it went up in the 90s, it even went up in the 2000s at the same time as China entered the world trading system. Big fall, of course, in the Great Recession, but then it climbed up again. And before COVID, these, these numbers aren't updated after 2019, the U US factories were pretty much producing as much as they ever had. Different goods, for sure, and we can get into that in, in discussions. Production had shifted towards more capital-intensive, higher-skilled production goods, whereas others such as textiles, for example, easy assembly type of goods had moved away. But total manufacturing was still strong. And this isn't just uh, in the US. Here is the same graph for the other G7 economies. You know, there are, there are bumps, bumps in, in several places. Again, the index is set to 100 in 1980. But for all of them, you can tell that it hasn't really, it hasn't declined like industrial employment has declined. So what we can say is that manufacturing didn't leave, manufacturing jobs disappeared. And that makes all the difference, I think. Um, if you do look at the best studies trying to estimate how many, how much of the loss in industrial jobs is actually due to trade liberalization, you find that in no case can you say that most of the loss in industrial jobs is because they moved to other countries. The biggest numbers you find are for the US, where people say that maybe 20 to 40%, the best studies of the jobs that vanished were due to import substitution. So the same things being produced by workers in China, say instead. In other countries, it's much smaller. Norway, it's 10%. France, 13% during this period of the China shock. And even that doesn't take into account that some new jobs, even manufacturing jobs, uh, appeared and grew in the exporting part of manufacturing. So Germany arguably saw more industrial jobs being saved because of globalized trade, because they could export capital goods to places like China. But the overall picture is that much more than half of the decline in industrial jobs cannot be blamed on trade liberalization. The vast majority of it cannot be blamed in that, uh, in that way on most, in most cases, most countries. So what was it instead? It was, I think, simply automation, productivity increases, technological change that meant that you can produce ever more goods with ever fewer hands. Uh, that is what you see by definition in the charters to show you more output in manufacturing with lesser inputs, fewer people in manufacturing, definition of higher labor productivity. But we know that where too, and not just in industry. So we know that computing has got rid of a lot of office functions that used to be carried out by say secretaries, stenographers and so on. We know that the internet is turning retail upside down. These are not manufacturing jobs, but they're also jobs that tend to be, to be held by low to middle formal education uh, people. Uh, and these are also hitting in a way that's less noticed than the hit to industrial jobs, but I think equally important. And the big point here is that this is continuing. And these dynamics are happening everywhere. Technological change is in that sense, pretty relentless. Structural, the structure of production in economies changes all the time. And the question really is how we handle these changes politically and in terms of policy. Now, combined with this dynamic, this these economic dynamics that change the structure of production, favoring different jobs that advantage different people in different places, uh, we've had an overlay of policies, and these do vary somewhat between countries, but there are some patterns. Even as we've seen income inequality go up, and in many countries we've seen, seen income shift from K-1 
from labor to capital, we have seen tax policy move not in a direction to offset that, but rather the other way around. So I'll show you one more chart here. These bars are the, uh, the average tax rates on top incomes, corporate incomes, i.e. profits, and dividend incomes across OECD countries uh, by decade. And you see that every decade, these rates have gone down. Now, if you thought that tax policy would be used to offset some of those changes in the underlying structure of the economy, you would have thought maybe we would have seen the opposite, but we haven't. And in parallel with taxes on high earners and on capital going down, more of the tax burden has been put on consumption taxes or labor taxes that hit people in the middle or even towards the bottom harder. So, so this is just one example where policies have not been designed to counteract a challenging shift in the economic structure, but rather has reinforced or at least not done anything to improve those shifts. There are other examples. We have seen, of course, a decline in unionism, but overall policy is not really conducive to sustaining the balance of power between workers and capital owners that we saw in the decades after the war. We have seen a, a deregulation of finance, or as some call it, it's an ugly word, but it's a useful word, financialization, which is to allow a financial logic to determine much more of uh, the decisions about capital allocation and the productive structure. Uh, one way we can see that, and I will, uh, I will come back to that in, in a bit, is how financial techniques uh, allow big companies to circumvent or ha have allowed big companies to circumvent capital taxation, corporate taxation in particular. And that is part of the cause, I think, why some countries, many countries have reduced corporate taxation, for example. Well, I'll get back to that. Um, but the big story here about what went wrong is not globalization, in my view, but technological changes that change the structure of advanced economies in a way that was unfavorable to smaller peripheral places, to people with less education, often to men, the jobs typically traditionally held by men, and the people who are not ready to be mobile or, or live with change, but are somewhat you know, attached to the places where they grew up, are not willing to move to where the new jobs are and adapt to, willing or able, I should say, adapt to the sort of skills that are becoming in demand. In parallel with that, policies that either did not do much to counteract these challenges, and in many cases, actually made them worse. So what, what should we do? What is an alternative? How do we restore an economy of belonging? That's the second big question I try to answer in the book. And the big principle guiding my thinking here is that we must not be too nostalgic about this, the, the, the past economy of belonging, the convergence in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, because it was tied to a particular technological stage. It was tied to a particular economic structure, which has gone. So we need to try to restore an economics, or we need an economics of belonging that goes with the grain of technological change. And that means accepting that the sort of jobs that now create the most economic surplus will not be factory jobs or few of them, but more of the cutting edge knowledge services jobs. And our task is to spread high productivity jobs as widely as we can across the population and across uh, national territories. So I will give uh, some examples from five different policy areas of how we can do this, I think. Uh, and point out in passing that all of this, I think, is largely possible without rolling back globalization. And if you get these national economic policies right, globalization really can be made to work for everyone. So, so let me go through them. Uh, the first point I've already touched on, we need a labor market that is conducive to high productivity jobs for everyone. Uh, and there is one region that has done this remarkably well, and those are the Nordic countries. The Nordic countries combine a high degree of wage, in, wage equality 
in an international perspective with high productivity growth, high employment and shared prosperity. That has long been thought of as a paradox, but actually it's probably because of the wage inequality that they've had those other good things, or at least that's been part of what we can think of as the secret source. In the Nordics, it's because of the, uh, the collaboration between unions and employers and, and governments. You've had a compressed wage distribution, and that has created incentives for businesses to make the people they hire for jobs as productive as possible. And it has also encouraged uh, a shift of resources from businesses and uh, production processes that use low-skilled, cheap labor intensively to more capital-intensive types of uh, styles of production that use more machines, more technologically advanced production processes, and where, therefore, labor is more productive and people can be paid more. Uh, there's one example I, I like to come back to that, that I first thought of when so I grew up in Norway. I lived in New York around the turn of the century. And uh, I had a conversation, this is about 20 years ago now, with a Norwegian economist where we thought about what are the differences between the Norwegian economy and the one we observe in New York. And we hit on this mundane activity of having your car cleaned. So in New York, you would, you know, you would find a, a car wash and drive in your car and you would have three or four men, typically immigrant men, descend on you with washcloths and product and so on and clean your car by hand. In Norway, as my colleague pointed out, that was a technology that fell into disuse as early as the 1960s. There's a sort of caveat with this because it's actually been coming back in Norway to illustrate that even the Nordics have a problem sustaining an economy of belonging. But the point was this, in the Nordics, wages are just too high to use labor as intensively as that. The car wash is a good example. When I was growing up, you would either go to a machine car wash or you would just do it by yourself. And I think it's a picture of how we want to think about the shift of the industrial structure. When industri industrial jobs disappear, because you don't need as many hands in factories anymore, you don't want people to go into low productivity, low paid, but plentiful service jobs. You want to be able to create high productivity jobs. They will typically be in services, uh, but where labor is productive enough to pay a high wage. In the Nordics, they did that because unions compress the wage distribution. There are other ways you can do that in countries that don't have the same institutional environment, in particular, I think, through an ambitious minimum wage policy. You can raise wage floors in a legislative way. And I hope that in discussion afterwards, uh, Alan will comment on this because he has looked much more closely at uh, minimum wages than I have. Um, that is not all of it. What you need to do as you force companies to get out of, of production processes that are intensive in low wage but low productivity labor is to ensure that there are other jobs that those people can go into. Uh, you do that, and you see this again in the Nordics, by, having, by spending what it takes on skills and education and by making it easy to shift from worse jobs into better jobs. So it's not well known that the highest, the countries in Europe with the highest rate of job changes are Denmark and Sweden. That's where the largest proportion of the population switch jobs every quarter or every year. And this sort of smoothness in the labor uh, helps to re reallocate labor from lower productivity to higher productivity jobs. You all strong uh, demand that ensures that there's enough demand for jobs in the economy. So at the same time, you try to make it more difficult for the private sector to employ people in low-wage, low-productivity ways, and you put enough demand into the economy that those companies that have more productive processes see enough demand for their output and therefore expand their hiring. A second part uh, is linked to this. How do you get this sort of ambitious high-pressure demand policy? Well, I think you get this um, by rethinking how we do macroeconomic policy at the moment. I'd like to think of this as doing macroeconomic policy as if the left behind mattered. Economies move in cycles, uh, but it's a 
insufficiently known fact that the cycles hurt the most marginalized and vulnerable and left behind much less than they hit those who thrive in the modern economy or even the average worker. But macroeconomic policy is usually set to stabilize the economy looking at the average, if you like, the aggregate numbers. And that means you don't really take into account that recessions and booms affect people very, very differently. I will show you another chart here uh, to illustrate this point. This chart um, is for the US, but the same pattern can be seen in other countries. The black line here is the three-year average of GDP growth. So the peaks are booms and the, and the troughs are recessions, more or less. This is the economic cycle, the black line. The other lines are measures of what I call the unemployment gap. So it's not unemployment, but it's the difference between the rate of unemployment for different marginalized groups compared to the average rate of unemployment. So of course, unemployment itself goes up in a recession and it falls in a boom and in the recovery. But what I want you to look at is the difference between the unemployment rate of uh, uh, the young versus the average population, that's the green line, uh, people with low formal education, that's the red line. And in the case of the US, uh, African-Americans, the black male unemployment gap is the blue line. And what you see is that every recession, these gaps go up. What that means is that in a recession, not only does unemployment go up, but the unemployment, of, the unemployment rate of the more vulnerable, the more marginalized groups go up much faster. To put it very simply, those who are already on the margin of the labor market, and that goes for those we think of as the left behind, are fired first in the recession and they are hired last in the recovery. And that means the sort of caution you often see among macroeconomic policymakers, central bankers who think we need to think of how to normalize our very low interest rates, budgetary policymakers worrying about the size of the deficit. They tend to underestimate the unequal pain that a cyclical economy and a recovery that is snuffed out too soon rather than squeezed for all it's worth inflicts uh, on the more marginalized groups in the population. So I think that if you were doing macroeconomic policy as if the left behind and the marginalized mattered, you would be biased towards what Keynes called for back in the 30s. You want to make the boom as long as possible and you want to stop the bust as fast as you can. And that means if we look back, even the pretty radical measures you saw in the global financial crisis, very low interest rates, asset purchases by central banks, large deficits, and the even bigger ones we have now, even that was probably too cautious. And certainly the withdrawal of support in the very slow and sluggish recovery we saw over the last 10 years was too cautious. So this is to cast it forward. I think a big risk at the moment is that we, even as we're doing a lot now, throwing a lot of demand support into the economy, that we start withdrawing that or not sustaining it sufficiently uh, much too soon. Uh, a third element of, a, of an agenda for restoring an economy of belonging has to do with power and empowerment. Because the end of belonging, while it has economic roots, is to a large extent experienced as a story of powerlessness. The people who live in what I call the new precariat have very little power. They have little power to find a better job, we know that a lot of people live hand to mouth and are therefore not in a position to take time off to increase their skills, renew their skills, look for a better job because they may not have the financial buffer to make that transition. And that is part of the reason why the countries that have navigated this best are the ones that actually facilitate job changes faster. Power and, and, and disempowerment is not only about labor markets, it's about other markets. We see very different threats that you may not think of as, as having anything to do with those who are weakly positioned in the labor market. But you see small businesses, for example, 
finding it difficult to compete in uh, an economy increasingly based on digital platforms against those platform economies themselves. So just take one example, you're a small company trying to sell on Amazon, but Amazon knows everything about your sales and is accused by, for example, the European Commission of using that knowledge to place its own products above yours. And of course, once we talk about data, we know that some companies are gathering enormous amounts of data. It's hard to get away from this data gathering. It's another source of unequal power. And we need policies across all these fields to restore power to those who don't have it, restore a balance of power in all kinds of markets. Let me just give you an example of how we do this in the labor market. Uh, there is much discussion and much controversy over the policy proposal of a universal basic income. I favor it, and I explain in the book why. It's not so much as a welfare benefit to combat poverty and low pay. It is, I think, something we should think of as an empowerment policy, which gives everyone the minimum financial security necessary to say no to exploitation, abuse, or unacceptable work conditions. And a bit like a minimum wage would do, or a bit like better enforcement of work conditions, work standards, in the workplace would do, it forces companies to move from production processes that are only viable because they take advantage of the weakest to other more productive um, production processes. A fourth strand of a policy program for an economy of belonging involves taxation, taxation as if the left behind mattered. I showed you an example earlier on why the tax burden has shifted in the opposite way of what you would expect if you were trying to counteract what's happening uh, in the dynamic, in the economic dynamic of the productive structure. Uh, we need to reverse that. I think we need to shift the tax burden and I have three very concrete proposals in the book. I think we need to introduce or increase in the countries that have them a net wealth tax. This is now on the agenda, has been on the agenda in the US uh, with some of the democratic presidential candidates proposing one. This means a tax, a recurrent tax on the net wealth of any wealth holder. Um, a second policy that is really an easy gain is to fix multinational corporate tax uh, which is seen as a problem of globalization, but I think what you've seen in the last year or two is that it isn't really. So what happened last year was that France said, look, if we don't fix tax loopholes in multinational corporate taxation, we are simply going to impose a turnover tax on some of the multinational corporations that do business in France. We will simply tax them in a different way on their activity here. This is something that is better to do multilaterally, and there's a process underway in the OECD to do this, but it can be done unilaterally. And it turned out that when some countries started to think about that, the multilateral process when came underway. Uh, the third concrete proposal I make is to taking the climate change challenge seriously, dramatically increase taxes on carbon, but do so in a way that doesn't hurt the left behind that I've said we need to care about more. Because it's a fact that they use a larger part of their income, not, not larger amounts absolutely, but a larger share of their income on carbon intensive goods, fuel, heating, carbon intensive heating, and so on. So just imposing a carbon tax would probably be counterproductive from that point of view. But uh, a proposal that started to circulate and being picked up by economists is what in America is called a carbon tax and dividend or a carbon fee and dividend. You would have large taxes on carbon emissions, but all that money you would redistribute on a per capita basis as a universal basic income, if you like, to every household or every individual. It turns out this could be very effective in terms of redistribution. I'll show you one more chart. This is an estimation that the US Treasury did three years ago. Uh, of the redistributive effect of a $49 per ton of carbon, carbon tax. That would increase the prices of fuel and other carbon intensive goods. But if you redistributed on an equal per capita basis, they found that that sort of tax could amount to something like $2,000 for a family of four, which would make a huge increase to the poorest. 
uh, here is a redistributive effect as they calculated it. The poorest, the poorest decile of families, the poorest 10% of families, would see their income increase by almost 10%. So there are ways of doing proper climate taxation in a way that helps the left behind rather than hurting them. So a net wealth tax, closing multinational corporate loopholes and a carbon tax with dividend gives you quite a lot of money to play with. That doesn't mean you should increase the overall tax take. You could use this to reduce other taxes. Some taxes that would be good to do, Keith, are the taxes on, on labor to make it easier to create these transitions from worse jobs to better jobs. And a final component uh, has to do with regional policy. I said at the beginning that maybe the, the, the most aggravating aspect of the end of economic belonging was the return of regional divergence that really sets countries up against one another by letting poorer parts of the country fall further behind richer parts of the country. It is a very difficult problem to solve because, as I said, the structure of modern economies favor jobs that tend to thrive in the biggest cities, in the capital cities. There's no easy fix here. But I say in the book, uh, you can take three different kinds of attitudes to the problem of regional divergence. You could, uh, once you acknowledge the problem of structural change, uh, one is a strategy of compensation, which just means, well, you know, let's try and offset the disadvantages of poorer places by subsidizing, let's say, subsidized factories in poorer places. That, I think, can only delay the inevitable and make the harm and the hurt greater when it has to happen. A more ambitious strategy would be a strategy of, of connectivity, where you try to connect left-behind areas into the poles of economic activity through infrastructure, transport infrastructure, broadband infrastructure, and so on. I think that may be a, a necessary condition, but it's far from a sufficient one. What you can end up facilitating is just that those most able to avail themselves of the best jobs in the cities find it easier to move away and go there. Uh, so I say we need to be ambitious enough to adopt a third view, which is what I call a strategy of attraction. You really need to find a package of policies that make at least some of the places that are now left behind attractive in their own right for companies in these new sectors to set up business there. That needs a whole host of different policies. Some of the other ones I've mentioned would actually go some way towards helping that by putting um, purchasing power more in the hands of consumers in these places, which could sustain a stronger local economy, by reducing the amount of which a more financialized economy, financialized economy is transferring resources into the big cities, the financial centers. Uh, but you need more. And one key thing you need to do is to seed some places with a critical mass of the most modern, high cognitive, high knowledge skill service jobs. One example of the sort of thing that works, which, which uh, economists at the LSE have actually looked at very closely, is, for example, to put research institutions, research universities in uh, distribute them more evenly across the national territories. That is a sort of thing that can create a critical mass of high productivity knowledge jobs that can then be used to attract more. But it's a very, very hard problem. So those are five policy areas where I think we need to become a lot more radical in terms of economic policy if we want to restore or build a new economy of belonging. But I think today is a fertile moment for that sort of radicalism. It's a fertile moment because COVID, as I said at the start, has made a lot of us much more aware of the plight of those who have fallen out because of the end of economic belonging. So I think there's an awareness that was growing slowly before, but has had to grow much more, much faster now. Governments have proved that they can be radical in an emergency. Nobody would have expected any government to do as much as they have done in the last three months at the start of the year. So radicalism is already here. And as we recover from the pandemic, we know that economies will need to be restructured because a lot of the jobs that have been lost or that people have been furloughed from, but that will be lost, cannot survive 
a different public health environment anyway. If social distancing is to some extent here to stay, there are a lot of the jobs and a lot of the jobs held by or in which the left behind are employed will disappear or be transformed or replaced by other kinds of jobs. So restructuring is already on the cards. So for all these reasons, I think it's, it's a good moment for radicalism. It can be a sort of 1945 moment, uh, but 1933 may be the better year to compare us with. So, so I'll end my talk here with where I start the book, which is that weekend, oh, the first weekend of March in 1933, where Roosevelt gave his inauguration speech, the one you all know about how we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. That marked the start of an extraordinarily ambitious reform program. Nothing we have done since in the global financial crisis or elsewhere, even now, can really compare with the scope of radical reforms that Roosevelt uh, started off then. Uh, it's a quirk of history that the same weekend was when a very different radicalism was ushered in in Europe because it was when the last sort of election of the Weimar Republic was held uh, in which Hitler get in and got enough votes to uh, pave the way for his dictatorship. Um, I'm not saying that that is going to happen now, but I do want to say that these huge economic upheavals do tend to favor radical radicalism, and it's up to us what sort of radicalism we want. I think we want a centrist, liberal radicalism of the sort of, uh, of the kind I propose here, because otherwise there will be worse and much more unsavory radicals who will offer radicalism in our place. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Martin, very much for um, that talk. And, and thank you to all the participants who've um, sent in questions during the course of the talk. I'm going to do my best to um, collate some of them. There are a number of sort of common themes, um, you know, so, but apologies if you can't identify exactly your question in, in the way I, I phrase it. Um, so one group of questions, Martin, uh, related, you talked about globalization as a possible explanation for the, the trends we've seen um, or the, your favorite technology. But some people, a lot, quite a lot of few people have asked about what about politics and what about ideology? What, what role have changes in those played in, in understanding the trends that we've seen? That, that's a really good question. Uh, there are a couple of, uh, couple of elements to the answer. One is, yes, politics, of course, matters because, as I said, policies have mattered. In many countries, the policies have not tried to offset the economic challenge, the economic dynamics, but reinforced it. And poli policies are often rooted in politics that sort of determines uh, what policies are chosen uh, to a large extent. Uh, but we should, we should point out that different countries have had different experiences here. There, was, uh, there wasn't a... Uh, People probably have mostly in mind the shift to a pretty, you know, a pretty hard shift to the right in the UK and the US under Thatcher and Reagan. And there's no doubt that that is part of the story. But of course, other countries didn't have the same shift. And yet you saw some of the same economic dynamics. So it's not the entire story, uh, but it is part of the story. And I certainly think that what politicians and policymakers conceive of as possible or natural or appropriate has played a very big role. Uh, and here globalization has not, I don't think, an economic effect, but an intellectual effect. So I think for a long time, there was a sense among men, many politicians, and not just on the right, that globalization meant their hands were tied in some of the ways I have talked about. And that globalization may have some bad effects, but the good effects outweighed the bad ones. And in any case, there was nothing you could do about it. Uh, I've tried to show through a number of examples, and there's more in the book, that actually national governments are much less constrained by globalization than they often claim. And, and I think often believe. So there is a sort of learned helplessness among many politicians. Is that ideology? I think ideology is part of it. But it's not only about you know, whether you favor the free market or whether you favor globalization. Uh, or whether you're a communitarian or, or whether you're a rightist or a leftist. It's also often about politicians' beliefs about how the economy works and what they can possibly do and what effects their actions can have on the economy. And there I think that 
they've just been allowed to get away with too much timidity. And partly a lot of people have accepted that the nation state didn't have much power. I think it still has a lot more power than people think. And that wielding that power is compatible with globalization and economic openness. Last thought on that. That may, so that may sound uh, like a statement that belongs on the left. I don't actually think that because it doesn't really, it doesn't necessarily mean a bigger state. Uh, it means a smarter state and it means a more active state. So it does mean using the apparatus of the state uh, more actively. But that's something that can fit on the center-right as much as on the center-left. And we even saw some inklings of this, at least rhetorically, during the short honeymoon of the Boris Johnson government after the December election, the whole leveling up agenda and the, the early March budget showed a willingness to think of the state in a new way on the center-right. So yes, ideology matters, but there's more to it than that. The intellectual importance of ideas is broader than just ideological and political ideas. Okay, thank you. Um, one of the themes that you talked about was the importance of empowering people who don't currently have much power. So a number of people have asked about, you know, you might do that in a top-down way from, you know, government policy, but what about sort of bottom-up from civil society groups, um, local initiatives that people have taken to improve, you know, the lives of their, their, their communities? What, what's your view on the role they have to play? Well, of course they cannot hurt. But in a sense, again, I don't want to let policymakers off the hook too easily. Uh, so, you know, much of my argument is directed to those who sit at the, the levers of state, if you like. You don't want to wait for it. You want to facilitate it. You want to take it on board when you can. I mean, other types of institutions that you didn't mention in the question, but that come to mind are local government, for example, which may have better local knowledge of what what sort of reforms might work in a particular area? Uh, what are the local skills, the traditions that could fit into a modern uh, economy? Uh, another, of course, are unions. Uh, unions have played an important role, played a very important role in those 30 years after the war, still play an important role in the Nordics, may not be able to play, at least not immediately, a, a very constructive role in some other countries. It takes time to build these institutions and I don't think we should wait for that time. So I'm, I'm not against it, uh, but I find it, from my perspective at least, thinking about policy, a bit defeatist to rely on it. So my way of thinking is it, it's great when you have those sorts of institutions, but where you don't, you want to find government policy tools that can fulfill the functions that they're unable to fulfill. So if you don't have unions representing, you know, giving workers a voice, you need to have policies by which workers' concerns can be channeled to, to management. If you have a fragmented economy or a sector based on gig work, you probably want policies in place to ensure that working in gigs doesn't disadvantage you relative to working for a constant employer against whom you can put pressure. So I think there are a lot of policies that are needed to compensate for the lack of institutions. That doesn't mean I'm against those institutions, but I don't think I want to wait for them to appear because the deck is often stacked against them. I mean, a bit on that theme, the, the problems you identify have been decades in, in the making, but often it means, it seems that we've got a very immediate crisis. So we're looking for short-term fixes. But do you think of what you propose as being quick fixes or really for the long term? I mean, is it the case, the Nordic model of high education, high wages, you know, that we, we can't simply educate everybody in countries like the UK and, and the US? You wouldn't start from here, right, as the old joke goes. Um, I mean, I, I want to try and have it both ways, that these are long term policies but that, uh, that you can implement pretty fast. And some of them, you're right, you don't, you don't uh, transplant a Nordic model. And even the Nordics are struggling with how to adapt their model uh, to these economic changes. I, I want to make clear that they are not problem free, but their model has stood them in good stead, but they, uh, they are struggling too. Um, so, you know, it's a bit like uh, the economy is sometimes more like a garden than like a machine, you know, in, in 
when we teach or learn economics, we often think of it as this machine where you click a button and then you get the output right away. They're often more like ecologies and things take time. But there are things you can do. That's not a reason to wait. That's actually a reason to hurry, you know, get things right, but don't postpone things. And I think it's a reason to try and think big and do a lot of big things at the same time when you can. And we're in that kind of moment now, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Just one concrete example where I'll also bounce it back to you, Alan, uh, where you can see pretty quick rewards. So think about the, uh, the, the rise in wage floors. This is obviously a big political battle in many countries. Now, in the UK since 2015, as I read the successive conservative governments or conservative chancellors, they have kind of tried to try to take a leaf out of the Nordic book. They've tried to press up the wage floor for over 25-year-olds quite fast in the expectation that it will not cause low-wage unemployment. It will increase the wages of those at the bottom, and maybe it will force businesses to become more productive. I mean, so far, the evidence, as I see it, but I'd like to hear you, uh, is that it's certainly increased wages. It's worked in that sense. Um, and there are no signs that it's been bad for employment. Um, and there may be some tentative signs from the, or at least evidence from the earlier, the earlier experience of the national minimum wage and in other countries that show it can increase productivity or reallocation. Well, now we have a moment where we know we need reallocation, where a lot of people are very badly off. I think it was the right decision in April for the government to push ahead with the scheduled national living wage increase. And I think you could do more of that. So, so it does have relevance in the immediate term too. But I do want to hear what you think about the wage floors. Well, I think they, I mean, they have been successful in uh, achieving what they set out to achieve, but they're sort of rather limited. I, I think the government in a way is also very worried about not just the earnings of minimum wage workers, but of workers who are further up the wage distribution, even at you know, the average. And they just don't know what levers to pull to, to raise wages, you know, of the average of the average person. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's been one of the, um, the, the issues there. Um, a number of people, I mean, you said yourself that, uh, moving on slightly, you said yourself that um, the Nordic countries have managed all of this better, not perfectly, perhaps. Um, but a number of people are sort of asking some, you know, questions about that you know Norway has had been able to rely on big oil revenues which is easy to redistribute um, these do these societies have big states and are so slightly sluggish um, as a result of that and you know they are they themselves haven't been immune to populist pressures and one of the issues that you didn't mention is that's often the left behind are sort of worried one of the things that we worry about is immigration and what, what's your views on, on that? Yeah, no, thanks for that question, because it was something I didn't, uh, didn't spend time on in the, in the talk. But it's, it's, of course, hugely important. Uh, Sweden is a really interesting case here, because uh, they were, of course, the, you know, the archetype of this sort of economy of belonging, of the social democratic post-war you know, utopia for many people. It was, it was never perfect, but it, it was the most extreme version of that. Um, and now they have this pretty nasty uh, right-wing xenophobic party with Nazi roots, the Sweden Democrats, uh, which is polling you know, around 20%. And of course, they are motivated in part by immigration. And more generally, it's quite right that the motivation uh, for many of these voters has to do with culture, with immigration, with a loss of community, with uh, a, a cultural lack of belonging. I certainly don't dispute that. My claim is that those motivations themselves have been, if you like, triggered or become politically salient because of the economy. And I think Sweden shows this because Sweden has actually swung very far away from what it used to be and what many, many people in other countries still think of it as. So Sweden Democrats came from pretty much zero 15 years ago. And there's a wonderful economics paper looking at where its support grew so much in the last 15 years. It so happens that there were two economic shocks hitting Sweden. Uh, one was the global financial crisis, which was bad for manufacturing. And a lot of manufacturing companies used that recession to restructure. So some people lost their jobs there. And there was also a, a welfare reform that basically it, it was meant to be to reward work more, which in this case meant make it harder to be out of work. And so you can measure that there are some people who are on the margins 
of the industrial labor market who were disproportionately hit by these two changes. And lo and behold, that's precisely where you see the increase in both support and recruitment for the Sweden Democrats. So the economic story actually holds up even in Sweden. Norway, of course, is a, is a different, it's a special case with, with all the oil money. It's been easier for them, but it's been easier for them to put in place the sort of policies I'm talking about. But that's not the only thing. One thing, uh, and I know we're running out of time, but I think this is a good comparison. Compare Norway and the UK since 2004. Which country has had the largest influx of migrant labor from Eastern Europe after Eastern Europe joined the EU? Turns out to be Norway relative to the population because they're also in the single market. Uh, but this antipathy to that immigration was much weaker in Norway than in the UK where it was a big issue in the Brexit referendum. And one thing that the, the Norway has done that the UK hasn't is to use national policies, policies to ensure that there isn't a downward pressure on work condition and wages in the sectors where these people uh, work. They've done that by uh, administrative extension of uh, wage floors that normally come through bargaining, basically sectoral minimum wages. And they've done a number of things to enforce these standards that the UK failed to do. Nothing to do with globalization, policies available to nation states, but one country uses them more than another. And I think you see even the cultural and values-based political results. Okay, thank you very much. I'm afraid I think we do have to uh, wrap up now. There have been lots more questions coming in that I would have loved to have asked. Uh, apologies to those that um, we don't get the opportunity to air them. S send them to me on Twitter and I'll try to, I'll try to answer. Okay, there are quite a lot of them. You may, may <laughs> get that, but um, anyway, yes. Please take him up on that. And I'm sure Martin's book is available in all good bookstores. Um, and just finally, on behalf of everybody, I'd just like to, to thank you for a very, very interesting talk. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks very much, everyone.